Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Nina Pantic, joined in this episode by Todd Martin. Martin joined me in New York City while Irina Falcone, my usual co-host, was out busy on tour. He is a former world number four ATP player with eight singles titles to his name. He also reached two Grand Slam finals. And right after his pro career ended in 2004, he dabbled in coaching, working with Marty Fish and Novak Djokovic. Now he is the CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island, and the tournament director of the ATP 250 event held every year in Newport. We talk about the candidates on the 2020 ballot. Here's our episode with Todd Martin. Okay, Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me in New York City. Thanks, Nina. It's great to have you in person. Yeah. So let's start a little bit with your story. Uh, people might know you as a former player. People might know you as a coach and as the CEO of the Tennis Hall of Fame. But why did you start playing tennis? Well, it's uh, 45 years ago now, so it's tough to remember. But um, you know, my, my parents uh, were both athletic and my mom was more tennis and golf and my dad was a uh, you know, traditional Midwestern football, baseball, basketball guy. And um, they did a really good job of introducing me to every sport when I was young. But um, the way I found tennis is because this is where they found their opportunity um, to have recreation together. And so I just chased them up to the park uh, once a week when they went to play and if I behaved myself, my dad would let me play home run derby for a little while afterwards. And it was a lot easier to hit tennis balls over the fence than baseballs. So, um, but I wasn't on the pro track. I was just wanting to satisfy my tremendous urge to play tennis and compete and get better. But you did go pro and you actually started off playing a couple of years at Northwestern. So yeah. when did you realize, Hey, I'm going to go pro. I'm, I'm good enough for this. So Somewhere along uh, the road during high school, I probably realized that not only was I going to play college tennis and probably receive a scholarship to play college tennis, which which had really been my objective um, from middle school years, but I probably got to that point where um, later on, probably my my junior or more likely my senior year, where I where I said. Not only do I want to play tennis after I'm done with college, but I imagine I have a decent chance of playing tennis after college, not successfully, but at least being able to justify not going straight from graduation to um, to work. And um, yeah, and it, it accelerated and it was much quicker than I would have anticipated. In your pro career, there's a bunch of highlights. I mean, you've won a bunch of titles. You've won eight titles, I believe. What memory stands out to you when you look back at your pro career? Um, one of them, I, I had lunch earlier today, and I was talking about it at lunch. Um, and it doesn't come up very often, but I was in the Summer Olympics in 2000 in Sydney. And 
I, um, it's a funny story because it's the worst loss of my entire career. Um, not because of the quality of the opponent, but just the score. I lost six two six zero, and it was a week, week and a half after I made it to the semifinals of the U.S. Open. So I went with this tremendous amount of confidence and excited about possibly um, competing for a medal. And yet, as disappointing as the on-court experience was, my overall experience was about as memorable as any in in the sport. And uh, and that really was because I was able to walk in the in in the opening ceremonies. And I'm not a ceremony guy, in spite of the working at the Hall of Fame, and in spite of this story, I'm not a ceremony guy. Uh, but there was something about it. It, it just it's very clear when you're amidst all all of those athletes and having grown up watch watching the opening ceremonies watching the olympics all these years it's just very clear how um what the magnitude of that achievement just to get there is uh and then also the gravity of the um the memory the future memory that you're going to have and that it it hasn't disappointed. It stays with me really well. In terms of the Hall of Fame, so you're the CEO. First, I want to ask you how you transitioned because you were a player, then you were a coach, and then now you're kind of running the show in Newport, Rhode Island. How did that come together? Is that something that you wanted? So I'll, I'll start by saying that um, I don't feel like many people had a clearer vision of what their career after tennis was going to be than I uh, lo and behold, I was slapped across the face with the reality that that's really not the career that's right for me. And um, so I had the opportunity to go into coaching. Marty Marty Fish asked me to coach him, I, I don't know, a month maybe after I retired. And that's what I wanted to do. And I really liked, uh, I really liked and really liked Marty and felt like he had a ton of potential to, to work with. And I was like, yeah, perfect. The, the the new frontier is here and you know the the world is my oyster and i had a really good experience with marty but uh in spite of being in the right you know in a really good um setting for myself it was very clear that um this wasn't all that it, it was cracked up to be um, you just get as a professional coach with one student, you only get so much time to work with somebody. There, you know, Marty and I spent a lot of time together, but there is, you know, it's not like I could preach to him all day, every day, and say, Marty, this is what you do in this moment, and this is what you do in that moment. Remember that it's they're they're bits and spurts. So it's it's for me, it was. Um, it was interesting and it was a learning experience for me, but, you know, then a, a year or so after I stopped with Marty, Novak asked me to coach him and, you know, I, I was curious. I don't, I don't really know what I was expecting to find in, in that experience, but Novak has so many people pulling on him that I had even less time with him. So I had to pick my point, my moments even better. And for me, that, that was an, uh, under gratifying experience. And, and to imagine working with at the time, the third best player in the world and somebody with just boundless ta talent, uh, 
to come away ungratified. That was, it was truly an eye opener. And that was then that I realized, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Marty, Roger, Novak, Joe, Bob, it just didn't matter. Uh, I just knew that professional coaching was not the, not the right fit for me to, to find fulfillment in a, in a professional sense. Um, the quality of life, the lifestyle was not conducive to, um, uh, to family life. And I retired largely because I was dissatisfied with the lifestyle of playing. So I still loved to play, but to imagine I, I didn't quit playing so that I could have the same lifestyle, um, and be, and be separated from my family for somebody else's tennis. I'd, I'd still rather play. I mean, to this day, I'd probably still rather play. Uh, so through those moments of, of, um, you know, awakening and, and revelation, um, and dissatisfaction, I, I finally, I dabbled with enough other things to realize that I didn't want to be in broadcasting. I didn't want to, uh, I, d- I didn't want to be on the corporate hospitality tour and I, I did some of those things and they're fun, but only in, only in small, in small, um, doses, but I, but I still loved to teach. And so I committed to starting a business without really knowing what I was doing. And, um, I figured I'd take matters in my own hands and, and, uh, ensure that I could teach many as opposed to one. And uh, so I started a, uh, a business um, in Jacksonville, Florida, where we, we lived for a long time and started uh, a local program for um, beginning players up through elite college bound uh, tennis players and a, a sort of a remote affiliate program where I was working with um, clubs around the country and trying to help them with their uh, junior development programs. And it was... Uh, quite a lot of fun, but I found myself running a business more than teaching and impacting youth. And uh, that wasn't why I had started the business. I did it. I just sort of to take matters into my own hands and not go to work for the man, if you will. And then it was, um, and that business was growing and, and, and um, I was learning quite a bit uh, on the business front and, uh, about a year and a half into that business, I was recruited to um, become the CEO at the Hall of Fame. I wouldn't have anticipated five and a half years later, um, I wouldn't have anticipated feeling like I do now. And the way I feel now is this is um, uh, this is the next best thing to when I was playing. I, I love it. I love, I love my work. I, um, uh, my hair is turning white at a rapid rate because of my work, but I love it. And I, um, I could never, uh, I could never replace the opportunity and the, and the growth that I've experienced since I've been there. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey listeners, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. This episode is with special guest, former ATP World Number no. 4, Todd Martin. He tells us how he transitioned from player to coach to CEO of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Keep listening. For those who haven't been, the Hall of Fame is like the mecca of tennis history. I mean, it's where you go to see old rackets and clothing and awards and trophies and signed artifacts and I think there's always little movies and different exhibits. I mean, honestly, it's like the peak number one place for a tennis nerdy fan to go to. As, as someone that's been there once, it was honestly like amazing. It's adorable. It's in Newport, Rhode Island. It's tiny and it's easy to walk around and see everything. And then there's these grass courts that are just kind of cornering and and, and encompassing this adorable little Hall of Fame. And I, I don't know, like for someone that hasn't been there, how would you describe it? To give a little bit more context, it's it's the original home of the U.S. Nationals in 1881. Um, we reside within a historic district in a historic town, so we're not allowed to do anything that um, that changes the property without um, without more red tape than you can possibly imagine. So. The red tape's not worth it, so we keep everything the same way it is. And uh, that's the easiest way to explain it, is it is um, the most historic tennis venue that I've ever been to, and I've been to most every one in, in the world. And um, it is just the way it was in 1881. Uh, it is quaint. It is precious. It glows. It's hidden. It's an architectural gem. If, if, if tennis isn't your thing, the architecture is out of this world. And um, I'm not a historian. I'm not a preservationist. My, I joke, my, my dad and my sister were both history majors. And I used to run away from the dinner table when they started talking about old stuff. I was like, get me out of here. And I tease my uh, my older sister all the time now that I'm the one that gets to work at a museum, and and it's uh, it's the greatest irony. The museum at the Hall of Fame is spectacular. Uh, we re- rebuilt it uh, almost five years ago, and it is it's everything that you say, Nina, and it's also. Um, even for the nerdier types than you and me, there is a history lesson um, at, at every at every turn, and that is for me not being a historian, but being a tennis lover has just deepened my love and has taken my love for the sport on a um, on a path that I wouldn't have anticipated uh, being available to me. And every year there's the Grass Court Newport ATP tournament held at the same venue. And every year, every summer, there is the induction ceremony for the new Hall of Famers, which is considered one of the greatest honors in the sport. 
this year it's supposed to be there's four candidates from what I understand. There's um Goran Ivanisevic, Conchita Martinez, Jonas Bjorkman, and Sergi Bruguera. Um weirdly, you've beaten Goran and you've beaten quite a few other people that have been inducted in the Hall of Fame. Is that a little bit weird for you? Or is that kind of makes you seem like, yeah, I'm the man of this house because I've I've done it. Well, I certainly don't <laughs> feel that. Um but it's interesting. I actually think I might have a winning record against the three male candidates. Um, but uh, it is, it's, it's an interesting element of my work is to have the level of familiarity or friendship or um, a, a history of opposition uh, with, some of this, with some of these individuals. I'm Yevgeny Kafelnikov, we just inducted this past summer. And Yevgeny and I were not, we were not great friends when we were playing. And yet, uh, I found a lot of, uh, I found a lot of pleasure in being able to tell him that he was going to be a Hall of Famer and welcoming to, welcome, welcoming him to Newport, celebrating him in the induction ceremony. And that, that's not what I would have anticipated. Um, a year before that, Michael Stieck came to town, and Michael and I were, were were pretty good friends for not being best buddies growing up together. And um, I gave him a hug when he showed up, and the embrace that he gave me, I, I felt every bit of uh, importance that he felt and uh, in his experience for being there. It was really uplifting just to just to know that. Uh, one, uh, a great person and a good friend was experiencing that. But more importantly, to know how valued the honor was by, um, by somebody that we spend, uh, we being our staff, spend so much time trying to figure out how to celebrate the most appropriate way possible. And how does the candidate get voted on? Who decides this? Is it ultimately up to your staff is that and there's a part of fan voting got introduced in 2018 which is yeah. awesome but that's a small percentage so you know who makes these calls these are very big calls yeah so um the beginning of the process uh anybody can nominate anybody um but then the ultimate um the ultimate process really starts uh in a committee of hall of famers historians media members and they take a, uh, a group of candidates or a group of nominees and they determine who should be on the ballot. Um, and who should be on the ballot are those deserving consideration for induction into the Hall of Fame. Not necessarily those they think should be in the Hall of Fame, but those who they believe really deserve consideration. And then once that ballot is made, then we have a group of about 150 uh it's, it's the official voting group is what we refer to them as. And that official voting group is a larger body, um, also constructed of Hall of Famers, historians, media members, former players, uh, former coaches, people who really know the industry, uh, have a, have a sense of the history of our sport and probably as important as anything else, understand the gravity of what this ultimate honor in our sport means. Uh, alongside that, um, concurrent with, uh, with that official voting group's activities, 
uh, then uh, the fan the fan is uh, able to vote now as well. So we have digital fan voting, and then the the, the official voting group. Um, if if there's seventy five percent support for a candidate, they're inducted into the Hall of Fame. So it's not a certain number each year, or it is. No, it can be zero. It can uh, from a, on the player category side, it can be zero, or it could be ten. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So some changes do happen at the Hall of Fame, and I know that we've had a recent Hall of Fame digital virtual exhibits. I'm not sure the exact term for it, but there's been a fashion one, tennis balls, and then a tennis racket one. Yeah. Is that because you guys are trying to stay hip and cool to stay with the times, or is it because you just don't have enough space in the museum to house all these things and you want to promote it further, or is it because people don't really get a chance to come to Rhode Island and then now they can see what it's like? Well, it's it's a it's a combination of all of those things. Uh, we are the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and we're tucked away in a small town in the smallest state in the country, and it's difficult to get to us, and it's expensive when you get there. So, um, we when when I came in, I and mean, I was not hired because I could manage a property like the like the Hall of Fame or run a tennis club like the Hall of Fame. I was hired because we, uh, we meaning the board and um, and my vision was very much to grow the the brand and grow the reach of the Hall of Fame. Our mission is to celebrate our sport, to preserve it, to promote it, and you can't do that in Newport, Rhode Island, adequately. So everything we've done over these last several years have been focused on a core strategy that we we refer to as going global. And uh, a big part of that is digitizing our museum collection. We've got probably about 10 times as much that we as we can display. So we have a ton of storage. And so we're digitizing all of that. And so that we can, um, we can curate exhibits like you like you referenced, and so that somebody in Timbuktu can if they want to know a little bit more about Jimmy Connors or Martina Navratilova, they can come to our website. They can read about them, but they can also um, see what technology did Jimmy Connors play with. Uh, what did what were Martina's shoes like in 1975? I mean, like, we talk so much about racket technology in the sport and, and string technology. If you saw what people used to wear on their feet, it's. I think it's. I think it's a more significant change uh, of what we wear on our feet than than what we what we hold in our hands. And uh, the younger generations just wouldn't be able to understand that if it weren't for being able to um, come to the Hall of Fame or to access uh, uh, digi- digital images like we have. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Hey listeners, you're listening to the Tennis.com podcast with special guest, International Tennis Hall of Fame CEO, Todd Martin. We're talking about the candidates for the class of 2020. Keep listening. A lot of things are surprising to me. I think the biggest shock I've had in the past few years is I thought wood rackets were like so expensive. I don't know why I had in my head. I was like, no one has these. These are so hard to find. They're vintage. And the Hall of Fame is obviously bursting with wood rackets. And I found out you can buy one online for like 15 bucks or 10 bucks. So that was disappointing. But seeing seeing these things up close is is unforgettable. And I have a weird obsession with Alice Marble. So for me, like the Hall of Fame is is a mecca. And, and we talked about 2020 a little bit. You're also part of the Hall of Fame ATP event. You're on tournament director. Mm-hmm. Is that part of your role that kind of ended up seamlessly happening? Because that's a that's a big job too. So I spend um, I spend less time on the tournament than than most areas of our business, just because we have a really good um, strong team of uh, event planners and and event operations team, and so I don't need to spend that much time. And my work with the tournament is um, largely based on player recruitment, um, the relationship with the ATP tour, uh, from a business standpoint and setting some higher standards and expectations of what kind of an event we put on. I wouldn't know how to coordinate getting the bleachers set up and timing that with our tents going up the right time and the vendors and, and, and all the, and and all the caterers and and so forth. Um, I leave that to the professionals, really. And uh, so had you asked me 20 years ago when I was playing, what would it be like to be a tournament director? I would have said I would, I'd want nothing to do with it because I only knew one person at the tournament. And I knew uh, I knew what that person did, what I saw that person do. But I also imagined that, that they were um, they were Oz behind the curtain and pushing every button and and once I realized that that wasn't the case and um, and good tournament directors just have great teams around them so that the tournament director can um, can lead be the relationship relationship person and be the face of the tournament. Uh, that that el- those elements I've enjoyed, and I think um, I think the sport of professional tennis is um, benefits from having some of us with playing backgrounds being on the other side of the fence. It's a really unique tournament too, because it's one of the f- only ones on grass in the U.S., and then it's right after Wimbledon, so it's a bit of a unusual. Unusual place in the calendar and unusual location, unusual surface, but every single year it draws pretty big names. And we've got John Isner, four-time champion. Yeah. You know, my only qualm with it is I wish there was also a women's tournament. And so, now it's US Open Series. So maybe, yes. Maybe. Yeah. So we are uh, – yeah, we're, we're, we're the day after Wimbledon, which uh, if you uh, look at it from a, from a business standpoint, from a, from a tour structure standpoint – you would say it's probably the worst week on the calendar. Um, a lot of guys are ready for a break after uh, all that time over in Europe and uh, surface change. And midway through the year, it's a very logical time to take a break. But it is 
I think we provide a really unique experience for the for the players. I think they enjoy coming and playing on a little bit of a different grass court. Wimbledon has become like a fast, hard court, and we are still a grass court. The ball bounces lower, and um, uh, it's it's uh, beneficial to come to the net regularly. And that's I think those are those are good things to be able to provide a different playing experience for these players. It improves what their um, uh, I think it improves them as tennis players. They have to be adaptable and and learn different shots and and so forth. Uh, being the day after Wimbledon, and now fortunately um, we've just joined the U.S. Open series. This is really exciting for us, and we're grass courts, but we're the first tournament on the U.S. Open series in in 2020, and it gives us an opportunity, uh, and I think it gives um, American tennis the opportunity to connect the home of the original U.S. Nationals with the current home of the U.S. Nationals in the U.S. Open at Flushing Meadow. I mean, grass is such a game changer. Yeah. I mean, playing on it is, is a different sport almost, it feels like. As someone who's only played on a few times, it, it's so tough. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit because we still have the, the hard court season coming up, the Australian Open coming up. You were a finalist. Your first Grand Slam final was in Melbourne. So is it a special place for you still? Is it something that you're more excited to than other, any other times of the year? So as fond as I am about my playing career, uh, and I know I'll – I know I'll always be fond about uh, those 14 years of my of my adult life, and then for sure the my childhood was just um, was so much richer because of the the life I had in tennis. I don't look back at my tennis career and think, "Oh, I remember when I was in this final or won that tournament or." When I beat that player, it is my memories are about conflict and and how I resolved those conflicts uh, on the court, off the court, relationships that I built, the fun times in the in the hotels, messing around, and um, uh, friendships that I didn't enter into the business thinking that I would leave with. These are these are lifelong memories that I'll cherish way way more than being in the finals of uh, the Australian Open in 1994. It's a fond memory. Don't get me wrong, but what's fond about it is the moments of inflection along the way that got me there. It's a profound answer. Well. <laughs> I don't know if that's necessarily a compliment. <laughs> it is. It definitely is. Um, and then we mentioned the player council. So you're president of the player council for a number of years, which is another a leadership role, which it sounds like we've got a pattern here building about things you do. Um, it sounds the past year or two, it's felt like the player council and the ATP are in turmoil and unhappy and just chaos. From your perspective as someone that was part of it, is that just the way it always is, but now there's more attention because maybe we have more news, people paying attention to it? Or is it really things are really getting bad and people are going to boycott and go crazy? I think it was 1994 when I became the president of the Player Council for the first time. And I was 23 years old and didn't know what I was getting myself into. And it was one of those oppor- one of those times where I definitely wanted to be on the council. I 
I felt like I had uh, a valuable opinion to put forward. And also, um, I was curious about what else was going on in our sport. And my parents always taught me to be good stewards of what you do. And um, so here I was, the process was we put 10, uh, we vote 10 people onto the council and then that those 10 people def, uh, determine who are the officers. And it was one of those times where 10 people lined up and somebody tells, tells you, if you're interested in being responsible for leading this organization, step forward and nine people stepped backwards and I was the only guy left, uh, left on that front line. So it was really interesting but at the same time, it was a much different, it was just a much different tour. I mean, we were, we were a handful of years old when I, when I became the president of the player council. Um, the tour is now in that stage where it either has to really perfect who it is, or it's at that point where we, we need to imagine what it should be. And there's a lot of tension and that tension has been going on for more than a decade now. It just, I I think it more than anything else, there are some things that have really uh, percolated or um, boiled the pot over at times. I don't think it's ever quite as bad as it, as it seems, but it's been a really contentious period of our, uh, of our, of our, uh, of our tourist history uh, I think part of part of why we know so much more about it is because obviously social media and sports business is just bigger and bigger and bigger. But a lot of it is um, when when I was leading, I was the best player on the player council, and my ranking was everywhere from four to twenty during during the time that I was, and. You know, the guys who are leading the player council these last 10 years primarily are Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, the three best players of the era, three of the greatest of all time. And they've taken responsibility and ownership. They have exerted their influence and leverage on the tour, um, I think mostly in really positive ways. But uh, that's a lot of influence. These these three individuals um, uh, are not the tail; they're they're the dog, and um, and they're able to wag they're able to wag the tail. And they don't always agree with each other, so it's not always really smooth and single directional um, in our in our movement. Uh, and it's a political world, and our sport is fractured and uh, regrettably uh, in its fracture we don't see the sport coming closer together we see more elements um, more fracture and that is where we really need bold strong leadership to take us forward and beyond what we um, I think what we intellectually know is wrong but we emotionally and perhaps greedily don't um, work away from. I mean, on, on that, it's it's exciting to see all these big players 
taking an active stance. You know, I think I think as fans and people that work in the sport, you like seeing the Federer and Nadal and Novak being so invested. I think that's awesome. And I think it's interesting to see how these things are going to unfold, with what changes will be made in 2020 and beyond. But I also want to, one of the last questions I want to ask you is uh, on a lighter note, do you still play tennis regularly? Are you still good? Well, I think good, it depends. It's a relative scale. Um, I am no better than I was yesterday uh, and certainly no better than I'll um, – and I won't be better tomorrow than I am today. I, I play with some regularity. Um, probably at the end of the year, I'll have had a racket in my hand and exerted myself and really challenged myself to – play decent tennis 15 or 20 times uh, and then probably another 15 or 20 times with the racket in my hand where I'm not exerting myself. And, and but then I also play um, a sport called court tennis, which is um, the ancient ancestor of, um, of tennis. It's so our sport comes from this sport called court tennis and there's only 11 courts in America and one of them's at the hall of fame. So it's, it's played with wood rackets, wound balls, played off of walls. It's the quirkiest thing in the world, but it's a lot of fun. sounds like a lot of fun. I have yeah. to come back to Newport and try it's that. It's good for your volleys, bad for your ground strokes. It sounds awesome. Yeah. Okay. And then on, on the final note, the Australian opens coming up and that is when the hall of fame class of 2020 gets decided and announced, right? Is there a certain day? Well, it's actually already decided, but oh. I can't tell you. Uh, it will be announced January 28th down in Australia. Okay, great. Well, everyone looking forward to finding out what happens in 2020 at the Hall of Fame and seeing a U.S. Open series taken over Newport, and that's going to be a lot of fun. So thank you for joining us on the podcast, Todd. Thanks, Nina. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also see the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, producers, Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers, Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.